0: The scripture reading this morning is from James 4, verses 7 through 10. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come nearer to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, O sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Good morning. As David said, we are back in the story. Again, if you're a guest with us, we are working our way through the Bible. We started in uh, January. We're going to end in December. uh, And we're to the book of 1 Samuel. And we're using the story as our outline, and the, the title of this chapter is Standing Tall, Falling Hard. The book of Judges ends with this word, these words, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. What a way to end a book. And what a statement that was so revealing. This, this final verse, it, it just kind of sums up the, what was going on. The violence, the sin, the idolatry, the inconsistency. Uh, the book tells us a lot of the details and in this sentence. Everyone did as they saw fit. I mean, what a recipe for disaster. And from the ending of that book to what we're studying today, 1 Samuel, not much has changed. There's still no king. Everyone is still doing what they think is right in their own eyes. And things are continually bad. In fact, they're getting worse. At this point, Israel was under the oppression of the Philistines and the Ammonites. And there didn't seem to be any end in sight. I mean, things are going from bad to worse. And when you read that verse... In those days, Israel had no king. In fact, I think four times in the book of Judges that is stated that Israel had no king. It's, it's almost like the Bible is saying, if we'd fix that, that would fix the problem. It doesn't say that, but it seems to infer that. If you read in, in, in chapter 10 of the story or in 1 Samuel chapter, chapters 1 and 2, it opens with uh, the story of Hannah. And what a great story of God's kindness on this woman. She's begging for a son. He's gracious to her. Answers her prayers. She becomes pregnant. She receives this child just as God has promised her. And then she does an amazing thing. She gives her child to the Lord. Samuel grows up. He lives with Eli, the priest, and his two sons. He's trained. He grows up. And he's a great leader for the people. And even though Eli's sons disobey, Samuel grows up to be a godly leader. But again, as Judges 21-25 says, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. It seems obvious that, that Samuel was getting up in age and even Samuel wasn't able to help things. I mean, things are going from bad to worse. Even his own sons were a wall. All the elders of Israel gathered together. They have a meeting with Samuel. So we've got to talk about this. Look there in your Bibles. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4 and 5. It's on the screen. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Now this is devastating to Samuel, but if you remember the story, God tells Samuel, it's not you they're rejecting, it's me. I'm their king. I'm the one that they're saying no to. And Samuel doesn't like it. And with all that he can share, all of his emotions, his clear thinking, he's trying to, to beg them to reconsider. He says, you know, having a king is not exactly what you think it is. It's not going to solve all your problems. The king will make you servants, housekeepers, farmers, soldiers. He talks about the taxes that are going to come, but they won't hear it. The people don't care. It goes in one ear and out the other. We want a king. We want a king. Everybody else has a king. If we get you the right man in that office, sounds like today, doesn't it? If we can get just the right man in that office, that's going to solve all our problems. So the Heavenly Father does what sometimes earthly parents do. When immature children are asking for something, we give them what they want. You ever had a little child that all they want is candy, and they don't want good food, they don't want real food, and there comes a point where you just say, have at it. And you just let them eat and eat, and they gorge, and you almost enjoy it, because you know what's coming. The stomach ache happens, and, and and it's a lesson that you know maybe for some only the experience will teach them. They want it, they want it, they won't hush. So you give it to them. They get sick. Hopefully, learn their lesson. I couldn't help but think about that when I was reading the story that God is allowing the nation of Israel. He's saying yes. He knows the king is not going to fix it. He knows the king is not the answer. He knows he's the king. That's what the Bible says. But sometimes God says yes to our prayers. Lord, make me more successful. Just give me a larger salary. Just a little bit more money. Or give me that dream job. And... Then when we get that success, we get that job, and we're so into it and, and, and we're working so many hours and it's so demanding, and while we're loving it, it's also just it's, it's just grinding. And sometimes we long for the good old days. You ever done that? Sometimes you, you wish that, oh, just for a good night's rest, just for some peace. Some of the word of the question which would you rather be rich and depressed or poor and happy? What's your choice? Rich and depressed or poor and happy? And if we're honest, we'd probably say, could I be moderately wealthy and moderately depressed? And then what we want, Israel chose a king over God. And it was a choice that is not quite that straightforward because at that time to them it made sense. Everybody else had a king. Everybody else had a king. They could look around everybody else had a king. See, it doesn't matter whether you're a child or an adult or here, a whole nation. You can't help but be aware of what everybody else is doing. It looks impressive. It looks like they're succeeding. Why can't we be like them? So they make these choices, some foolish choices. Fill in the blanks. It's going to be short and simple today as far as the blanks. And I don't know what this timer is, but I'm glad it stopped. Because that was so distracting to me, and I don't know if that was distracting to you, but let me just go ahead and, and, and speak to that. But they make three foolish choices. Choice number one, they chose power over purpose. I want you to see this. You're familiar with the story, but I want you to grab this. They, they chose power over purpose. This was the choice of the Israelites. Remember back in Genesis chapter 12, so you're studying the story, God told Abram, later called Abraham, that God would make him the, the father of many He'd start this nation. You will be a blessing to all nations, he said. We remember that story, but God didn't just make him a nation. He didn't just give him a son. He didn't just give him a family. God gave him a purpose. It was a family with a purpose. It was a nation with a purpose. And the more you read and the deeper you go into the Word, you see that purpose. It's not just stories. There's an underlying purpose in the stories. What we need to understand, and we talked about this a little bit last week when we talked about God's omniscience. He knows everything. There's no surprises to God. We don't get here in 1 Samuel and, 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 and God going, ooh, I didn't see that coming. God saw this coming. He knew this day would come. And the way God led Israel, the way He led them into battle, The way he did so many things miraculously for them. You would think they would know. They would understand the purpose. But they didn't. See, everything that he did, and and you see this because so many times, you know, the, the numbers, he would make them so outnumbered by the enemies that the only way they could count victory is that God did it. Or whatever their obstacle was, the only way they could get across is if God did it. The only way that they were victorious is if God was in there. He had that purpose. It was for his glory. And yet, they the people just so forget that. But here in First Samuel chapter eight, the people they forget all about that. They lose sight of the big picture. You know, as we're staying the story, we're talking about the upper story and the lower story. They're forgetting the upper story. They're not seeing God. They're forgetting the great things He's done for them and their people. What they see is, we don't have a king. We want a king. Listen again what the elder said to Samuel. You are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Do you see what's taking place? I'm not sure what word you would use to describe what's going on there. The word that came to mind to me was fear. Or maybe insecurity. We're not measuring up to the other nations. We're not like them. They see these other armies around them, they see these kings with all the pomp and circumstance. They see these armies, these military might. And Israel decides that they need power. Power that they can see. They want a king. But here's what they forgot. They forgot that the purpose of the way their nation fights battles was not for them to be victorious, was for God to get the glory. Glory. For Him to be the one that all the attention goes to Him. And they forgot how many times their greatest military accomplishments was when God was right there in the middle of them. Making it happen. And you know, the temptation to choose power over purpose is still true for us today. We still can struggle with this. See, sometimes we think our success comes when we just try hard. Or or maybe it's from our pedigree. Or maybe our own effort. But the Bible tells us that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're higher than ours. But when I'm focusing on my pedigree and my education and my work and my effort, the focus is wrong because it's all about me and mine. You know what that is? It just boils down to pride. That's what it is. It's sin. It's choosing power over purpose. It's living in the flesh more than relying on the Spirit of God. Remember the verses... Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Or what about Zechariah 4, verse 6? Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. I love those verses. So choose to follow God's purpose to take precedence over to control the situation. But the temptation for Israel to choose power that they could see over a purpose that they couldn't see, that was a real temptation for them. And obviously, we see them falling into it. And the choice they made to cry out for a king was revealing that. And it changed the course of Israel's history. Even though Samuel warned them, even though God was against it, they wouldn't listen. First Samuel verse 8, verse 19 and 20. We want a king over us then we'll be like all the other nations with the king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. They want to be like everyone else. One author said this, the desire for normalization is usually a step away from God. The desire for normalization is usually a step away from God. What do you think about that? I'm wanting to be accepted. I want to be like everybody else. You know, we're never told to blend in by God. Ever. We're never told to blend in. We're told, in fact, to stand out. As God's people, that's who we are. Christians are, are, are set apart. The church actually means the called out. The Bible talks about us as being strangers. Even uses the word aliens. That we're not of this world. So Samuel and God listen to all these people saying, we need to fit in. We want to be like all the other countries. So God tells Samuel, okay, it's time. You anoint Saul as the first king. And Saul, you remember Saul? Remember reading about him? Saul is a good choice. I mean, Saul is the perfect picture of what you expect from a king. He's young, he's tall, he's strong, he's handsome, he's Bo Pew. Isn't he? No, Bo's not tall. But he's the perfect king, isn't he? But the way it unveil, un, 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 unfolds, it reveals how nearsighted Israel was at the time. Their choice for power over purpose, it just shows that they don't see the big picture. But number two, I want you to see they foolishly chose circumstances over salvation. Circumstances over salvation. And 1 Samuel 12 is the beginning of the transition, it is time for this transition of leadership. And the handwriting on the wall is there. So Samuel is giving his farewell speech. And what he's saying though is, I want you to know I'm not for this. God's not for this. We're just kind of giving in to this. This is a bad idea. Just going to go on record for that. And so he goes and gives them a history lesson. He knows that his time of influence is coming to an end. They've anointed Saul as the new king. There's this huge celebration. So what he does, he draws their attention. Don't forget the past. Don't forget it was God. His power, His provision, His salvation. It was God who led them out of Egypt. It was God who parted the Red Sea. It was God who raised up the judges to lead them. Really, He just recaps their history as a people. And He wants them to remember not just these moments, but the God who made these moments happen. So in a subtle way, He's saying, "Just, just don't forget. Just don't forget. And then it reaches a crescendo. Look there in 1 Samuel 12, verse 12. Through fifteen, Now, when you saw the Nahash king of the Ammonites was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now, here is the king you have chosen, the one you ask for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good, But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against His commands, His hand will be against you as it was against your fathers. No matter what God has done for Israel in the past, no matter how powerful He had displayed, God's with them. He's sort of allowing this. This wasn't His choice, not what He wishes for them. He wants to be their king. He is their king. But He's going to allow them this choice. If you think about all these miracles of Joshua, the battle of Jericho, Gideon, Deborah, Samson, all, surely these people remember all of this. But before we're too critical of them, maybe we need to just kind of look at our, in the mirror. How good are we at, at being blinded by our own circumstances and not remembering the past? Because circumstances, isn't it true, they cause us to forget? We forget how good God is because right now we're in the middle of a problem. Right now there's something huge that's right there on our plate. And we forget it is God who saved us. It is God who gives us a purpose. God is the one who helped us to get out of that that relationship that wasn't healthy. It was God who who saved my marriage. It, It was God who renewed my hope. It was God who, when I was at that difficult moment... Help me to realize I'm not living for this life. I'm living for the next life. In the middle of the stress and the busyness and the chaos, when I'm not sure if I'm going to make it to the end of the month or the end of the week, it's God who is my purpose. And so here in verses 14 and 15 that we just read, they're very important. Because here Samuel is saying, if they and their king, so he's including their king in this, but kind of the same thing, if you follow God, you're going to be good. It's going to be all right. But if you don't, it's not going to be good. So we need to understand, they can still land on their feet. This is not a deal breaker for them. This is not like, okay, God is is turning their back and they don't have his blessing. God is still with them. But it's their choice. And that brings us to the third one. They chose options over obedience. To me, just, to, just watching to read the story of Saul is so intriguing because, again, he stands heads and shoulders above everyone else, not just, just uh, literally, but figuratively. He was a good man. He was an honest man. He was a God-fearing man. And so in the early time of, of his reign, he was listening to God. He was obeying God. He was listening to Samuel. He wanted to make good choices. But that all changed. When Saul became too nearsighted to see the big picture, First Samuel 15, so, remember Saul was sent by God to wage war against the Amalekites? And God told Saul specifically, here's the battle plan. Look what He says there, verse 3, First Samuel 15, Now go, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men, women, children, and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now, it's important that we, you see how specific God is, and Saul clearly understood. Take no provisions for the troops. Why is that? Well, we've, we've studied this as we've gone through this. This, this was a part of God's justice. This was, these people had turned their back on God, and God was exacting justice through His people. And what kind of justice is when God says, this is the way it's going to be, and then His people come in, and that's not the way it is. It's inconsistent. Saul had no right to change the battle plan. But he did. When he got his army together, marched out, they annihilated the army. But there's a phrase in 1 Samuel 15, 9. If you've got your Bible open, I want to encourage you just to put a circle around. 15, 9. First two words. But Saul. That's a hinge in the story. But Saul. When that, you read the, those two words, everything changes. Instead of destroying everything as God commanded to him, he, he spares the king, he spares the best sheep, the best cattle. The Bible says everything that was of value. Not an uncommon thing in war. Samuel comes to confront Saul. And when he does Saul's first words, it's very telling. Look, look there in your Bibles, verse 13 Saul's words just right off the bat. The Lord bless you. The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. So King Saul sees Samuel coming and he's like a child saying, I didn't eat the last two cookies. And how did he know there were two? And what's that smear of chocolate on his cheek? You know, he's just he's so telling of himself. Obviously, he's got a guilty conscience here. But notice Samuel's response. Verse 14. So Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Why am I walking in the Amalekite farm? And so Saul immediately begins to justify his actions. And what does he do? He blames others. Look at verse 15. Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. So confronted, he gets defensive. And he blames his soldiers. That's a good king, isn't it? To blame the ones out front. To blame the ones who are really just taking the orders, the commands. He doesn't respond with humility. He doesn't respond with brokenness. He doesn't own what he's done. Instead, he's defensive. And that's a sign of pride. But Saul is the beginning of the end. And yet, as I read through that, I thought, you know, when someone criticizes you, What's your first response? Are we like Saul? We get defensive? Start blaming? Instead, maybe we should ask ourselves the question is there any truth to this? Where's the truth in this? How can this make me a better person? What change do I need to make? You see, a humble person, when things go wrong, they look for how did I contribute? What part of the blame is mine? Maybe it's all. Maybe it's a part. Maybe it's none, but doubtful. If I'm in the middle of the mess, i probably have to contribute to it. But the proud person gets defensive and so quick to point fingers to other people. And you've got to take note of this exchange between Samuel and Saul because Saul tries to finagle his way out of it. Look at verse 19. Samuel says, why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? And verse 20, but I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder. The best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice to them, to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And then get this, verse 22. You may already have this underlined in your Bible. Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. What's he saying? What's the message here? Your heart of obedience is better than token offerings. Why are you doing what you're doing? Your heart of obedience is better than what you burn at the altar, what you throw in the plate. See, Saul, he understood the battle plan. He understood what he was supposed to do. But he's reconfiguring. He's thinking maybe there's some other options. And so instead of choosing to obey, he's choosing some other options. He wanted to do what seemed like was best to him. And we've got to understand what he did was not really a bad thing. It's not like he he broke a law or a rule other than he just didn't fulfill what God said. He spared a life. He spared some sheep. He offered a sacrifice. Isn't that good? But it was disobedience. Because God said, do something else. One author said this, you see, what Saul did was almost obedience. I hadn't put those two words together before. Almost obedience. But it makes sense. It was so close. But he tweaked it just a little. And as I read through this, I thought, my, this is so us. God wanted obedience. And Saul thought he knew better. He thought he had a better idea. He's got his own agenda. One author said, God's love language is obedience. I never thought about that before. Have you? Remember studying love languages and some people it's gifts or acts of service or, or kind words? God's love language is Obedience. Not in some legalistic way that you have to work your way to heaven or earn your salvation. Not so much, but that when you obey God, it puts a smile on His face. It brings joy to His heart. Because you were listening. And you followed through. Let me ask a question or two. Do you ever give God options? maybe when God commands something, you try to maybe twist it to a couple of things, kind of like Saul? God tells you to use your talents for the Lord, to serve, to volunteer. But like Saul, we think, you know, I'm very busy. Kind of getting old. I've done my time. I'm not sure if I could do that. Maybe I can give some money to help instead. Nothing wrong with giving money. In fact, that can be good. But that may not be what God's asking of you. God tells you to share your faith with a friend or a coworker. We say, well, maybe I'll invite them to church. Where do you read in the Bible about inviting people to church? It's not there. It's about letting your light shine, about telling them about your faith. Go and make disciples. Now inviting them to church is good, but that's not what God's telling you to do. He saying you go and you share your faith with them. God tells you to give sacrificially. And we want to be generous, but money is tight. So we do the best we can. We're trying to to take care of our bills and live within our means. So we pay our bills. We give God what's left. Give God what's left? Is that giving sacrificially? Is that what God is asking of us? God tells you to forgive. And we want to forgive. But, just like Saul, we put a butt in there. But they gotta ask me. But I'm not ready yet. God tells you to swallow your pride and be baptized into Jesus Christ. And instead you say, you know, I, I, I'm not sure if I'm ready about that, or I want to think about that, or I'm gonna study more. It's good to study. Read the Bible. That's an awesome thing. Think about it. You should think about it. But studying Is an obedience. Can I tell you what I believe God thinks when He hears those statements? I think God thinks they really don't want me as their king, they want to be like everybody else. They are, instead of being full of faith, they're full of fear and insecurity. They don't really believe what I've told them. They want their options. See, Saul couldn't see the big picture. In James 4.10, the Bible says, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. And Israel's new cry for a king was marked by a series of nearsighted choices. Think about it. They weren't looking up to God. They weren't seeing the big picture. They weren't looking back at all that God had done for them. All they could see was here and now. And everybody else has a king and they want to be like everybody else. They couldn't see that choosing a human king, they were choosing, well, they were choosing to not go with God. By saying yes to a king, they were saying no to God. They couldn't see that their lust for power derailed God's purpose for them as a nation. They weren't supposed to be like all the other nations. They couldn't see that God's salvation in the middle of their circumstances. They wanted to create their own options where they could be in control. Saul was too nearsighted to see God's work. And I guess sometimes we're faced with the same question. Do you want God as your king or do you want someone else or something else on the throne? that's really the question. To me, that's what we take home from this. Because God wants to be the king of your life. He wants it so badly that He left heaven and He came to earth to prove it to show it to you. And when Jesus, God in the flesh, was beaten by Roman guards, He took it. didn't say a word. He endured it. He chose purpose over power. And when He was mocked, He was hanging on the cross, He was suffocating to death, it wasn't about circumstances. It was about salvation. He chose salvation over circumstances. And when he prayed, Not my will, but yours be done. Remember, he just, is there any other way? Is there any other option? No. He chose obedience over options. And when he walked out of the grave, three days later, risen Lord, King of kings. What do you want? Who's your king? Let's pray. God in heaven, help us as we read your word and study to know that this is not just stories with characters that have good morals. It's about you and your people. And the lessons to be learned are still true today. But You are King. God, may You be the King on the throne of our lives. May You be the King of our schedule, the King of our morals, the King of our relationships, the King of our pocketbook, the King over where we work. And God, may we prove our allegiance, our commitment to You by obedience. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Maybe today you need to make a decision to accept Jesus as the King of your life. To confess that you believe that He is the Son of God. To repent of your sins. To know that there is no way you can earn your way to heaven. It's only because of what He did on the cross. Let Him wash you clean in baptism. Let Him give you the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Why don't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you?